Well, hi, folks. Uh, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Ken and Charlie. Today, we're going to chat a bit about migration in northeastern and I guess a little bit midwestern uh, North America. This is probably something that's going to be way more familiar to most of our listeners than a lot of the stuff we talk about. Hopefully, that familiarity makes for a nice change. I guess we have both done, I mean, I, I started birding in the Northeast, and that was a big part of what inspired me to become a birder. And uh, subsequently, we've both done a lot of work for different tropical birding projects, publicity projects that have been based in different migrant traps in North America, uh, mostly Maggie Marsh and Point Pelee, and, and then also down in Texas. We chatted about that a bit in our Texas episode. Well, to kick things off, I'm just curious to ask you your general, your impression of, of this migration phenomenon. You know, warblers are the classic thing, the classic component of this migration. As somebody who didn't grow up with it, as somebody who came to it probably in your 30s and 40s, yeah, what do you think of it as a, as a Brit birder? You started birding in the UK where you certainly don't have anything like a warbler migration. Well, no. not a colorful warbler migration. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit soured against it, to be honest. I, I'm not a big migration birder. It doesn't really do it for me. And I think part of the souring has been a few bad experiences on tours. You know, I've basically only had the this kind of North American migration as a as a guide or, you know, leading bird walks or whatever. And... You know, if you think about a migrant trap and, and you're there for a couple of weeks, how, how many of those days are going to be amazing days? You know, this is probably what makes it kind of exciting because you, you never know what it's going to be like. But if you're there every day, most days are not great. <laughs> so it's like um, it's just it's just very painful sometimes. I remember you were saying in in Texas it was kind of fun because you got all the all the shorebirds and and seabirds out there if, if there's nothing happening in the woods, but somewhere like um like ohio mcgee marsh you know if it's not happening it's pretty it's pretty dull yeah i guess it it's a phenomenon that cuts both ways in terms mm. of it can make anywhere interesting on the right day but it can make anywhere boring on the <laughs> wrong day yeah depending on how you look at it i mean i try to take a certain pleasure just in being in a natural place on any day but but if what you're really looking for is is active migration, yep, it can be even the best places and some of the uh, best times of year can be very very slow. And, but uh, and a, and a lot of the places that I've spent a lot of time haven't been places that are exciting during migration. Like growing up in the UK, it's pretty far north, so a lot of the 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 birds you're waiting for are breeding birds, you know. So summer is quite interesting, you know, a lot of breeding birds. Um, rather than spring and um, and autumn, South Africa as well. It's quite far south, so you're just getting you know you're getting migrants coming in, but they're coming in for the um, coming for the winter or whatever. You know they're not there on migration. And also Thailand as well is great in winter because of the winter birds. So a lot of the places I've spent a lot of time have not are not places that are really hot on migration. One um, one difference is is sort of in in East Asia, like in Japan and Taiwan, they have kind of a similar um, migration that's quite exciting. Yeah, but um, I, I do enjoy it, and I can see the I can see the attraction of all these very very beautiful birds. So I can see what people 
like about it but um it's not i wouldn't say it's really my thing yeah it is weird in places like uh south africa or thailand birds just kind of appear <laughs> you know one day suddenly a little flycatcher will just pop up an ultramarine flycatcher or something in thailand or you know suddenly there'll just be a, a red-chested cuckoo singing where there wasn't one all winter but you very rarely see active migration no. in those places maybe a little bit of raptor migration in thailand yeah. but this is it's kind of mysterious to me like where you do and don't see active migration yeah it doesn't perfectly correspond to geography or any other variable that i'm aware of to some degree yeah. in like in it, it may be a function of where people are aware of it happening i mean i i think a lot of it happens in africa but there's just not nearly as many birders who are tuned into it and i think that was a great frontier for potential exploration in in places like southeast asia and africa yeah i know in like it's say in east asia you get you get this east asian flyway so a lot of stuff is going over the you know sea of japan and stuff you know along the coast in china um you're not getting a big, big migrations over over the continent itself and in europe as well you know and along the coasts and stuff like in the uk you'll get you get stuff falling in along the coast but you don't get this kind of big overland migration which you do in north america yeah that's a good point um it's it really kind of enlivens birding in places that are not particularly good for birding like yeah western pennsylvania <laughs> or west virginia you know there are there are these weeks of the year when it just feels like anything is possible anywhere i'm not quite sure what accounts for that broad brush migration uh, one, uh, one thing might just be the size of the cashment of breeding areas up in the boreal forest it's quite vast and fairly pristine so you just have a lot of birds and then they're they're certainly all funneled down to quite a narrow point of geography down through mexico and the you know the isthmus of panama in some cases and that, so they're they're concentrated there and then they're they're fanning out in in north america although it's still maybe a relatively narrow band of sort of broadleaf forest that things are coming through sort of between illinois and new jersey or something like that i, I don't know it's i'd have to think about it a bit more or speak to folks who are more knowledgeable about it yeah, I, and I'm I'm quite familiar because I've spent a lot of time in Latin America with a lot of the wintering grounds of these North American species. Like I mean, I'm say I've seen Blackburnian warbler a lot more in South America than I have in North America. You know, because that would, I you know I lived in Ecuador for three huh. years and it's just full of Blackburnian warblers in the mountains there. You know, or I I've seen cerulean warblers in like four South American countries and I saw them there a lot. Yeah, you, know, you know, a lot earlier than I'd ever saw one in the U.S. So it's kind of interesting to know these birds from other places too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are so many Eurasian birds where my only experience of them <laughs> is on the African or Southeast Asian or sometimes even Australasian wintering grounds. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the songs and the breeding habitats are just totally unknown to me. So it's it's fascinating to kind of explore different avifaunas from different it, it is. angles i i'm also I, completely on a you know i've never experienced these kind of shorebird breeding sites like in alaska or these kind of boreal forests i've never you know a, a lot of these 
birds and also with the asian birds the philoscopus warblers I, I don't know a lot of them from their breeding grounds further north so it's yeah it's interesting when you only your experience is only part of the bird's life history yeah one thing that i like about migration in in northeast north america is that you're close enough to the breeding grounds of most of these species that they're quite vocal and they also start to choose habitat that resembles their breeding grounds or, or some of them are actually just coming back into their breeding habitat you know it's a little bit more like what we described from thailand and south africa where things just pop into the woodlot where they're going to breed but there's a lot of song and that's a big part of what i really enjoy about warbler migration and just northeastern migration in general it's this very auditory event you know it's a spectacle and it's so different from Texas, eh? Because yeah. down in Texas, it's still this kind of secretive, quiet event. You might hear a little bit of sub song and you hear chip notes and stuff. But boy, by the time they get up to Ohio or Ontario, just about all the warblers are just in full song. I, so I did a couple of seasons um, at High Island. So I kind of knew all the birds, you know, and I was kind of leading little walks there and stuff and it was fine and then uh, I, I got sent up to McGee Marsh and I hadn't prepared I hadn't learned any of the songs and I thought it was going to be the same as Texas and it and it wasn't <laughs> I got I got a very rude awakening um to, to that you know that the that difference where the birds are a, a lot more vocal a lot more you know singing so my uh my family just this week we did a little trip to uh, basically a country cottage a couple hours from Tana and it was on a lake but you know a damned lake and it was a beautiful place but pretty much in a pine plantation with a few rice paddies here and there it's Madagascar they have to have, you know there's always some rice paddies <laughs> yeah. but uh, I was just reflecting on migration there and I was just thinking migration is this component or this spice that enlivens even the most destroyed environments and we just don't have that in Madagascar. Yeah. So when you're in a place like that in Madagascar that's almost completely unnatural, there's just basically no chance of seeing anything interesting or, or very, very <laughs> low chance. Yeah. And, and it just, it, it makes it makes certain environments just feel so dead. And it makes the kind of the deforestation or the destruction of the marshes or whatever just a bit oppressive. And, and there's something about migration that it, it just enlivens any place you know you can be like in a vacant lot in a city and you can see a migrating sparrow mm -hmm. or it you know you can be in a cornfield and suddenly it can be full of uh larks or or something you know it's it really is this this magical component to birding uh, especially in more i guess temperate places i can see that allure i've 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 come across that kind of thing, like uh, along the coast in China, where there's a there's an active migration there. A lot of the time, it was just really impoverished habitat or artificial habitats, but there was still cool stuff dropping in. But it's um, yeah, it's certainly an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? You know, you're getting some really amazing birds just in little in kind of impoverished habitats. Yeah, I guess sometimes the impoverishment of an area actually creates remarkable concentrations of migrants i'm thinking of large stretches of illinois and, and other areas of the midwest that are almost pure corn monoculture mm. when you do get 
you know, one little woodlot within the corn, that woodlot suddenly functions as this incredible migrant trap. And, and I've heard crazy stories from friends in Illinois and parts of the world like that about just unbelievable days, you know, 25 or 30 species of warblers and just some little unprepossessing <laughs> woodlot. Um, even, um, you know, McGee Marsh, the geography there is a big part of why there's so many warblers concentrated. This is on the, the south shore of Lake Erie in northwestern Ohio. Basically, there's a string of woodlots along the, the south shore of the lake, and there it's probably the best place in, in North America to see concentrations of wood warblers. But not only are birds concentrated by the lake, but there's so so much of the woods in that part of the world have been destroyed to make way for you know various monocultures that I think that further concentrates a lot of these birds. You know, they're just flying over this sort of desert of industrial agriculture. And then they, they not only see the lake that they don't want to fly over, but then there's woodlots there. So this is like a, a double whammy that concentrates birds in that area. I guess that's what happens on the spring migration is that the birds are waiting for the right conditions to, to fly over the big expanse of water, isn't it? I guess in yep, Pili, I've never actually been to Pili, but I, I guess at Pili it's more of a kind of a fallout where, you know, they're just tired and they need to land in spring at least. Yeah, well, Pili's different because you're on the north shore of the same lake and then Pili is a big long point that sticks out. So I guess you get a couple different phenomena there. One is birds just dropping in, you know, birds that are exhausted from flying over the lake. Um, or maybe they, it, at dawn they found themselves over water and then they you know just desperately try to make landfall. But you, you get this second phenomenon at, at Pili, which is this reverse migration, which to my knowledge nobody fully understands. But you can stand at the tip of that point on a spring, on most spring mornings, and just see hundreds or thousands of birds flying south. Right. Um, <laughs> off, go, heading actually back out over the lake and i guess there's different theories about like repositioning migration about birds maybe flying a very long distance in from south central america getting to the general area where they want to go and then you know headed for whatever woodlot in in ohio or something um you know maybe birds overshooting might be birds that are a little bit confused by the geography there because the you know, the point kind of wraps around, so birds might be following the shoreline and thinking that's taking them east, and then it's actually shooting them south. But so I've, I've heard various different theories, but it's a pretty bizarre phenomenon to be sitting there watching birds streaming south in the middle of uh, spring migration. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, it's almost like a science into itself, isn't it, migration? Because so, it, it, it involves so many different... Um, fields, you know, your sort of meteorology and um, and e even climate change and stuff like that. You, you, it seems to whether things like that are being affected. Um, there's a lot of different things going on, and um, I think it's not a it's not not always black and white. There seems there always seems to be a lot of theories, but you know, not not a like a hundred percent. Yeah, tricky thing to understand. I and mean, one of the things I was fascinated by on my recent time in the states during spring migration was there's all these uh, migration forecasts now mm. in in north america 
quite fairly let's say granular and and at least trying to be precise you know down to maybe hundreds or thousands of birds for forecast for given x county on this night and i guess it's based on on like weather radar uh, readings of in combination with weather i mean i i don't know much about it and so i don't want to misinform people but i was certainly fascinated by this uh phenomenon i don't think any of this existed when i was a kid you know it was just a total you just go out in the woods and you just see what happens you you, you could maybe have some sense of what the possibilities were based on weather forecast but yeah it's a whole whole new uh, age in terms of uh, all these bird forecasts i i listened to a like a, a talk on bird migration once and i remember the guy was talking about the the thing that often spurs birds to to start their migration is probably hormonal um that might be based on changes changes in day length so you know even though there's other stuff happening on the way and sometimes you know birds are arriving early or late that the the actually day that they depart you know because it's based on day length rather than anything else is actually kind of fixed but um i mean I, i've had these these seasons where you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and, and there just seems to be nothing coming and you're always waiting for like a big um i i had this uh, migration tour in china once and we were waiting in this uh, supposed you know migration trap for like a week and it was just absolutely dead and the day we left there was a massive i mean there was just the most incredible fallout and we, we only had like two hours because we had to leave you know so it was just rather depressing but um yeah it's uh, there's, there's certainly a lot going on yeah it's a very tricky thing when you're a tour company and you're sort of scheduling tours that are supposed to coincide with migration it's uh <laughs> it can be wonderful or it can be can be terrible yeah. the last tour i did in texas we, we had sort of moderate luck with migration but uh i i could see having a trip that was just quite disappointing because you just just hit the the you know the week that was just totally dead the lull in migration but I, i'm curious to ask you you know how do you find north american migration comparing with with european and east asian i haven't experienced a whole lot of of either i know you were in israel and i think you were there a little bit early weren't you i think you weren't um you didn't make, yep. you didn't experience this wonderful place but i, I that migration through Israel um, at peak is just something to behold. I mean, I was there for a few days with an Israeli friend, and it was just absolutely incredible. It's one of the best, some of the best birding I've ever done. And and he said even that was a quiet year. So that is certainly a fantastic place, and I really uh, would recommend um, that to you know to do Israel during migration. The East Asia is quite. Uh, quite localized you've got to go to very specific places to catch any any kind of visible migration in japan there's a couple of small islands in the sea of japan which i visited before and they were pretty exciting um i so i lead quite a few tours to taiwan and we kind of redesigned that to include a, a migration section to that tour which visits these little islands just off mainland china that belong to taiwan and I did that. I w went along with Keith Barnes. So he was he was leading it. I was sort of learning the tour, and that tour was just amazing. We got so much cool stuff. 
And it was very interesting because, you know, in North America, you get these very um, beautiful warblers, colorful warblers. Um, but in, in Europe, the, the colorful things uh, are more the, the buntings. The, the, the warblers are all pretty dull. So, yeah, we were getting these beautiful, colorful buntings, um, yellow-breasted buntings and yellow-browed buntings and chestnut-headed buntings. You know, they're just some really, really cool stuff. So that that was a lot of fun. So I've I've experienced the East Asian one um, and had some had some good time. When I was living in Japan, we would always try and hit a few of these little islands and we get a few things. But um, I think as far as a sort of very widespread phenomenon in North America, it doesn't really compare anywhere else you know there's certain small areas where you can go and get some but you don't get it on a sort of continental basis like you do in north america uh, interesting I, I it's weird i've been in a bunch of migrant areas at suboptimal times <laughs> so you know i've been i've been to gibraltar yeah in in winter I've been to other good migrant traps in Spain just a, a couple of weeks too early in spring. Same thing with Elat in Israel. I was there just a couple yeah. weeks earlier. I was just, there was a taste <laughs> of migration. You know, there was a couple Sylvia warblers around and steppe eagles were migrating and it, it just gave me this hunger Starting. to see it really in full swing. But I was in, uh, in Sweden as well at uh, Falsterbo just about two weeks early. It was like, one willow warbler showed up and it was quite exciting you know whereas <laughs> a couple of weeks later you just get like hundreds of thousands of these things so i it's definitely piqued my my oh and I, and i was also once in in china just in in early autumn so again it was just a trickle of right. a few flycatchers right. so i i've just kind of like nibbled around the edges of eastern hemisphere migration uh i really need to like properly experience it at some point <laughs> yeah but um no i i really did enjoy the the taiwanese migration so i would definitely uh i would definitely recommend that um and also the the Is israel one um so if anybody and, and I, i'd love to get to spain i'd love to get to gibraltar at the right time see some of there's supposed to be some pretty amazing raptor migration there and there's quite a few interesting sort of uh passerines and stuff Hopping out. I remember in when I was traveling through the Middle East, um, seeing these huge um, kettles of of black storks, thousands of black storks. They when they've got to cross over a, a small stretch of water, they're sort of going up and up and up on the thermals and just getting more and more height, and then kind of like cruising down um, across these short straits of, uh, of of water. So yeah, there's some pretty cool and raptors as well. So I guess I guess. Um, with, with bigger birds that rely on thermals they really need to um they really need to get some height because of course there's no thermals over water so um the the smaller birds can fly over water but the larger birds they really need to, to find the the shortest distance between land masses to to migrate that's why gibraltar is so cool pretty cool phenomenon eh? like they're they're over land on the moroccan side and they find some place with a good updraft and they just circle higher and higher and higher and higher you know up to 10 15 maybe twenty thousand feet sometimes <laughs> and then they when they get high enough they basically i guess they can see like the spanish shore the yeah. gibraltar side and they pretty much just glide, glide all the way across the the mediterranean yeah. uh, and you know just slowly losing altitude 
but I, they've calculated it so that they can make the make the crossing but and then they should you know show up yeah but i think it's touch and go you know they're getting towards the end and, and getting lower and lower and lower as they approach the landmass and then often they've got to start flapping but when you're a big bird that uses a lot of energy so this is a this is a mm-hmm. big thing well, for people who aren't birders or, or maybe who are birders in parts of the world that don't get much migration, I can tell you migration is addicting. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a gateway drug for so many people who are now birders, I would say, because it, it just, as I said, it, it, you know, it can enliven any woodlot anywhere at the right time of year. And you just never know what's possible. It's just, I, I find it immensely exciting, certainly as a kid, I don't know if I would be a birder today if not for for migration. Really? You know, it just there was this just tremendous sense of excitement. You just wake up in you know late April and you just want to be in the woods because you <laughs> feel like if if you're not out there, you're gonna you you're probably gonna miss something. Um, and and that can be true of wetlands and lots of habitats, not just woods. But uh, that was the habitat I grew up birding in. Yeah, it's. I love the way it gives you a sense of the passage of time and just kind of how profound every day is and how different is something weird about living in the tropics, like way off migratory pathways as I do now. You just feel like you're almost in this la la land where, where nothing really happens or changes much. You they sort of have like a, a warmer rainy season and a drier, cooler season. But you know, when you're in a place with four seasons and like two pronounced bird migrations, it somehow just highlights the passage of time. Like you can't ignore it. You know, it's like March is so different from May. They're like completely different worlds. I think American I, birders I really love that. are really kind of looking forward to those times as well. You know, you're in a sort of slow season and nothing's really happening. And maybe people are not even going out birding, but they're really, really looking forward to this particular, you know, a few weeks of the year. Cause that's, you know, it's really, um, you know, the best time for birding. Yeah, I actually just lived through that in western Pennsylvania because I was there from late March until early May, although I, I was gone in Texas for much of April. But, you know, March is just so wintry and so dead in so many ways. You know, I, it was so exciting to find <laughs> the first Phoebe, to, to have one fox sparrow, this, these kind of things. You know, they're, they're hints of what's to come, but going in birding in late or early May was just so exciting, especially remind, you know, remembering how quiet and dead and wintry it had been in March. It's, it's an incredible transformation. One, uh, one thing I wanted to tell you about was this amazing morning I had just before I headed back to Madagascar. I, I was birding pretty much every day because it was like I described. I, I would just wake up like an hour before sunrise and hear birds singing, and I just didn't want to not be in the woods. You know, I just I couldn't help myself. Like it didn't matter if I hadn't slept enough, or I just I just felt this urgency yeah. of the season. Like I, I have to be out there. Yep. But I, I discovered this new. It's like an, a, a county land trust, like a new protected area which is this big kind of hilltop or series of hilltops. It's in the Pittsburgh suburbs, and it's actually, it's sort of surrounded by 
old steel mills, some of which are kind of crumbling into rust and some of which are still active. You know, this is classic Pittsburgh kind of <laughs> rust belt stuff. It, like it, you look from a distance and it seems like a pretty grim area, but there's this amazing woodlot up on top of kind of a hills and ridgeline. And for some reason, it's pretty pristine. I mean, it, I don't know why it was never turned into a neighborhood or anything, but this was quite a wonderful discovery, this place. I, I did lots of hiking there. But I went there one morning in early May, and I experienced one of the most amazing fallouts. I mean, fallout's a dangerous word because people often say, no, that wasn't really a fallout. That was just a really good morning of migration. But whatever you want to call it, it was a pretty amazing phenomenon. So I basically you know, drove up this hill, parked my car, and got out and just immediately heard like four or five species of warblers singing which was quite a good uh, good sign. And then I walked I walked through the whole place several miles and there were hundreds of individuals of long distance migratory warblers which is quite exceptional in western Pennsylvania. When you think about this huge band of woods running across the northeast you know, the chances of getting that kind of concentration at any one spot on any one morning is pretty low. And and my whole, you know, kind of childhood of birding in Western Pennsylvania, I never saw more warblers in a single morning. Really? It was, uh, and you know, I spent hundreds of mornings out birding. So to have kind of a, an all-time best morning in Western <laughs> PA, just ran- randomly when I w- happened to be a few days in Pittsburgh was pretty pretty special there was just you know we were talking about how birds are vocal in when they get that far north there was just this cacophony of warbler song i was just the whole morning i spent like five or six hours in there i was never out of hearing of at least a few warblers i mean the canopy was just literally buzzing with warbler song um it, it was it was an amazing morning of birding uh, just so exciting, you know. It was like it draws you in, and you just want to find as many species of warblers as you can. I think I found 19 in the end. Didn't quite make it to 20. 20 is like this funny fun, benchmark but... among birders. <laughs> like that's that's a really good morning of birding. So I didn't quite make that, but just the sheer numbers were were staggering. And so I I submitted an eBird checklist, and I shared this with some local birders, and and people basically said. I've never experienced a morning like that. You know, I've lived in Pittsburgh for 40 years. So it was definitely, and if you look at some of the counts I had of some of these species, it was it was truly exceptional, like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of uh, migration in that part of the world. So I, I actually made a few recordings that morning, which hopefully will give you a sense of just the cacophony of warbler song. So we'll we'll play one of those as our natural sound. I don't find North American warbler songs very easy to uh, to learn. I find a lot of them quite similar to each other. Because after my first disastrous visit to uh, McGee Marsh, when I didn't know any of the songs, I kind of the next year I made a little bit more effort to learn them, and I it just yeah they, they, I didn't find them particular particularly easy, you know, compared to other places in the world. I agree. There there are some very tricky ones. And then you get into, you know, chip notes and contact notes and those sorts of things. And uh, they're diagnosable, but it really takes quite a bit of skill to 
to identify them. This was something that was uh, brought home to me is just how much I've forgotten about North American birding. <laughs> I, was, I was flabbergasted a few times. I was like, I can't believe I'm not sure what that is. Because, really? you know, I was just so on these things when I was a sort of a teenager. Yep. But I guess 20 years, almost 20 years outside of the States and it's natural to get a bit rusty. So in a way, it was kind of exciting to like take on beginner's mind again and be like, well, let me figure out what this is. I was also playing with uh, with the Merlin Sound ID oh. app, which which I, I know uh, you and I both contributed to that. Not the training, US one uh, for me. The AI, did, right, but, with uh, boxing yeah. uh, vocalizations, and it was quite quite fun to use in the field after having trained the AI. Uh, it was pretty pretty amazingly good, eh? It was it was batting a you know about ninety five percent. Accuracy, and I will admit there was a few times when I wasn't totally sure, and then I pulled out the robot and was like, "Oh, yep, that's what it. Yep, okay." <laughs> how, just a you know, this is a more general question, but how how do you think this Merlin Sound ID is gonna, or any kind of Sound ID technology is gonna change birding in the future? Yeah, I don't think it's gonna replace guides because there are just so many skills that are required to be a guide that essentially the auditory recognition of birds is just one of many arguably not even one of the top most important skills <laughs> i do think that this kind of technology is already revolutionizing bird surveying you know for for like scientific purposes you know that was my bread and butter as a young adult was basically doing bird surveys and it was a skill that I had that not many people had at that time, right? Was yeah. just being very proficient at knowing bird songs. I made my living that way. I don't think that's going to be a job for humans for much longer. So, I think we're basically going to be deploying, you know, passive listening recording devices and then probably, you know, even sending that data in wirelessly and, and just analyzing it on computers with AIs and, and ultimately getting much higher quality data too. Yeah. So that's, I, I view that as a much more radical shift than anything that's going to happen with like bird guiding, at least any time in the near future. I don't, I don't see a robot guiding a bird tour for quite a while. <laughs> you think um, it'll get more people into birding, this kind of technology? I've, I, I introduced my uncle to it and he's a, you know, keen, but fairly casual birder. And also my mom, she likes birds, but not really a birder. Right. And they both have absolutely loved they? Uh, Merlin Sound ID. And and I think for them, just, just being able to recognize all these voices was quite uh, transformational. So that, to me, that was a microcosm of, yeah, this, this is a great way to get people into birds. Because I guess it's hard when you haven't just been steeped in bird ID and bird sounds your whole life. And it is quite intimidating. So it could be a great way. For people to start no very cool it's very um i think it could be quite revolutionary um anyway time will time will tell i guess i'm still busy with uh with the india one because they you know they 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 got the american one the north american one up and running and then they uh they they pulled out the uh, western Palearctic one which i think is now in use so the next one they're trying is uh, is for india so been doing a little bit of um of work on that so have you had occasion to try it in the field yet anywhere no i haven't probably not i haven't 
I'm, I, well, I'm going to be in the UK for Christmas, New Year, but I, there won't be a lot singing at that time. <laughs> I might get a, a mallard quacking or something like that, but we'll uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see, see if we can pull it out. It'll be, it'll be fun to try. You know, one thing that I I haven't done yet, but I I took like a a forty five minute recording of a huge nocturnal migration oh. at High Island, Texas, wow. and I made the recording with my my high quality recording gear, shotgun mic, and everything. And I want to feed that through the Merlin Sound ID model and see yeah, yeah. you know what it picks up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some there's some birders who are, who are good enough to know what most of those flight calls are, but uh, sadly I'm no longer in that category in North America. <laughs> but uh, be interesting to see what the AI comes comes up with. Yeah. You know, there was one more thing I wanted to say about migration, is that like everybody's all the birders in North America enjoy migration, and some you know that might be the only birding they're doing of the year is a migration birding because it's like the the best birding. But migration birding outside of North America is not is not for everybody. It's something that just a very few hardcore people do. You know, you imagine who's going to be going to Gibraltar to look at raptors or who's going to go to some little island in the Sea of Japan to catch a few migrants there. It's it's a pretty niche thing. You know, it's not a it's not a you know, general birding activity. So I think this was a I guess uh, it's... this was a bit of a su- surprise for me when I first came to the North North America and everybody was ranting and raving about migration. I, I think I was surprised that everybody was so hardcore, but then I think I quickly realized that that they weren't. You know, everybody did this. It's it's so I guess it's such a widespread phenomenon in the states. You can just see yeah. it almost anywhere, and 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 then you've got some you know beautiful, colorful, charismatic birds involved. It's not like some little gray green philoscopus warblers <laughs> that only the best birders can identify so it, in a way it's it's more democratic or more accessible and i think um, yeah i guess some birds are often quite close as well and i'm thinking about mcgee marsha you know sometimes in the afternoons the birds just kind of come down to almost eye level and there's these beautiful gems of birds bright blue and bright orange and they're all just like hopping around you you know you can almost reach out and touch them it's really quite remarkable that is a very good point. I mean, birds are just so much shyer in Asia and Europe that that in itself makes this phenomenon less accessible, right? I mean, a lot of migration birding, like in the Netherlands, is like standing in fields, squinting through a scope <laughs> at some you know streaky brown pipits yeah. that are half a mile away, trying to pick out some you know rare far eastern vagrant. I mean, it's. In the enjoyable UK, for a few. In the UK, you'll be standing, you know, at Spurn, you know, on the on the coast, you know, squinting out at stuff, you know, passing along the coast there. You know, it's not it's not your sort of recreational birding. It's quite kind of hardcore. Yeah, certainly. If I look at something like sea watching in North America, it remains the purview of, you know, some hardcore devotees. It's not something that most birders do or want to do. This is something that, you know, we tried to change when my friend Cameron and I wrote this sea watching guide. We tried to make it more accessible to people. I think we certainly revealed a lot of identification info and ways of making it more fun and accessible. But fundamentally, it is still a hard form of birding when you just think about the distances and the uh, light conditions and all this, as opposed to, like you say, woodlot where you've got a Blackburnian warbler three feet away. <laughs> 
like, <laughs> just anybody can enjoy that. Yeah. That's, you know, it's very accessible. Yeah. Okay, we're going to finish off for the day. It was a nice little chat about the migration in the northeast of the U.S., but uh, yeah, also chatting a little bit about other places in the world. Um, kind of sitting at home here, I, I wouldn't actually mind... <laughs> <laughs> some uh, some U.S. migration birding now. It just kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, of the charm of it. Um, but anyway, we're going to close out with a recording that Ken made from his uh, wonderful experience in Pennsylvania um, that day. So uh, thanks again for tuning in um, in our start of season three. Um, we hope people stick with us. Don't forget to tell your friends about us we'd really love to build up the listenership this year um and don't forget to check us out on patreon many thanks to our current patrons and we hope to catch you all on the next episode <laughs>